I'm standing just beside the shore of Loch Furness in the northeastern corner of Clue Bay. And this is a most elemental landscape. It's where water and earth, rock and air meet. It seems as well here as if the glaciers had retreated only very recently. The ground is very raw. It's strewn with boulders and the water seems dark and inert. And this is the beginning for me, this is the gateway to Wild Nathan. The new rucksack. Wouldn't you think he'd relax at home and not be bothering us with his excitement, said the stones. I can keep an eye on the pool above the footbridge, said the big block of quartz. I can keep a secret, said the roan. The grey crow comes to me in the evening. As my word is my bond, said the stone chat, we'll be up there in the myrtle gossiping away. I can see him from up here. He's on his way again, said the lark. Wait till you see the new rucksack, said Willie Wag in the car park. He shouldered it like a priest getting ready for mass. I'm Sean Lysett, and that's one of the poems I've written about the Wild Nathan area of North Mayo. It's an area that I've uh, been exploring as an angler, as an amateur naturalist, for many years, ever since I moved to Mayo about 25 years ago. And in this programme, I'd like to go on a journey. On the way, we'll be meeting people who, in their own way, have many things to share, much knowledge and experience about this diverse and wonderful place. We have the big skies in Mayo, we have the mountainous region, um, but at night time we still have the open skyscape to admire, to enjoy and to inspire us. Every single salmon or trout that moves up or down from the sea to the Bursio catchment is caught in these traps, counted, put through whatever monitoring programme we have and then is released to continue its journey. One of the nice things about seeing the river this low is that it gives us a chance to see the pattern of the riverbed, where the fish might lie, where the deep holes are, where the channels are that the, the current runs through. It looks as if this chamber had been used for over 1200 years as this ritual site to get ready these bodies for the afterworld. So I've come to the Marine Institute uh, to meet Elvira de Ito, who's a biologist. She's been working here for many years, uh, studying these populations of migratory fish, the salmon, the sea trout and the eels, as they move between salt water and fresh water. And the Marine Institute here on Loch Furness sits on a moraine between the upper lake, Loch Fia, and the lower lake, Loch Furness and there are just a couple of narrow channels for the fish to pass, so it's an ideal location uh, to study these migratory uh, creatures. So Elvira, where are you going to take us first of all? 
So I think we'll go up to the mill race first, which is one of the channels connecting Loch Fia and Loch Furness, and we can have a look at the fish trap up there, which is our the primary, our main day job is operating those fish traps. Now we're here at the mill race at uh, Burrishool. The sound of running water here brings me back to the Shannon at Limerick, where I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and there were plenty of salmon and eels in the river at that time. And Elvira, you've been uh, involved in uh, studying fish and migratory fish here for many years, haven't you? Yeah, so I've worked here for 20 years, but actually the research station has had research going on here since the 1950s. Um, the mill race that you can hear is an artificial channel linking Loch Fia behind us and Loch Furness in front of us. There's two channels between it, the mill race and the salmon leap. The salmon leap is a natural falls. These two channels, they're quite narrow and it's just really well suited to the installation of these permanent fish traps that you see. And that allows for a full trap of every migratory fish that's moving between freshwater and marine. So every single salmon or trout that moves up or down from the sea to the Burrishill catchment is caught in these traps, counted, put through whatever monitoring programme we have and then is released to continue its journey. Um, so now we're inside in the upstream trap. So the fish come in through this channel here and then um, we can lift the floor. Just take a little while. And does that release so that just allows you, then. yeah, it just allows you to be able to take the fish out with the net, reach down, and then put the floor back down again. So this is a movable floor on the bottom of the They're, they're actually quite compliant, these fish, yeah. aren't they? <laughs> so this gets done every morning and every afternoon. And if it was the peak of the grills run in late June, July, there might be 20, 30, 40 fish in here. You've been able to notice big changes in uh, salmon and eel populations over the years. There was a lot of salmon around in Ireland generally in the 1970s and then after that it started to decline um, and it is still declining. So the last 10 years it's kind of been fairly stable here in Burrishul but low. So an average about 450-500 returning fish every year. Whereas in the 1970, we might have been touching 1,000, 1,100. So we have then um, probably a couple of thousand smolts. So the smolts are the small salmon that go out to sea. So for five or 6,000 smolts going out, we get maybe a couple of hundred adults coming back. It, it's a beautiful moment, isn't it, in the spring when the smolt run begins? Yeah. Um, I think I've seen footage of uh, those little fish sort of appearing on the surface of the lake up there, yeah. just prior to moving out. Yeah, so you can kind of see them starting to accumulate um, just there in Fia, and then also as soon as they get let downstream into Loch Furness and they hit salt water, they really start jumping. So there's a lot of 
discussion about why they start jumping, you know, is it because the salt is aggravating them or is it just because they can and they're enjoying themselves or, you know, but you can see them jumping and then obviously you start seeing the herons coming in and other kind of predators as soon as they see the smolts coming out, they line up waiting for their food. That must be a, a kind of champagne moment for you here, is it, when the smolt run starts? Yeah, yeah, and it's, you know, we know the, the people who do the traps every day know that they're in for a busy month. The O, section five. Then all the salmon knew, as they waited in their archaic style, somewhere in a bay. Even in salt, they could get traces of their native gravel. They could smell peat. They remembered where algae came from with mud and stems of rushes. The water came flavored with sheep off those uplands. In the spate, the fish sensed cold stones washed by falling water and hands made numb by mountain rain. Late in the year, gusting winds shook petals like confetti from the loose trife to announce that now is the time to begin the journey back to the schools of home, as if someone had said, isn't it time, son, you emailed your father? Conscience, or maybe a genome remembering the river where they'd been born. Anyway, against the drift of water, they began. So this is our best chance now, perhaps, to see an adult salmon today. Yeah, so we're at the upstream trap on the left, the salmon leap, um, and there was three or four fishing it this morning, but um, the lads have already taken them out. There might be one or two that have been coming up during the day. So the salmon leap is a natural uh, channel between Loch Fia and Furness, and it has quite a sharp 15-metre drop, so it's kind of a classic waterfall that you'll see salmon jumping up. I think we're out of luck. We're yeah. out of luck today. None today. Okay, I'll have to take the fishing rod and go somewhere else, I think. So we've uh, driven round the mountains to the west and we've come to the river Owen Duff, which uh, has a magnificent catchment flowing off the mountains into uh, Black Sod Bay in the west. The catchments here have been relatively unaffected by forestry, so they have a particular conservation value. And in fact, they were part of a, a famous spat between the Irish government and the European Union some years ago because it was maintained that the government weren't doing enough to protect these areas. We're just on the banks of the river now and in fairly low water. And I'm here to meet an old friend of mine, Chris Huxley, with whom I've shared many adventures, many great days on the river. Chris, I, I don't think the prospects are great today. No, they're not, uh, they're not great. The, the water is very low. We haven't had rain 
for several days now and, and there hasn't been a spate but there are fish in the river um, and there is a bit of wind to keep the midges off and a bit of wind to ripple the surface of the water and, and hide the fact that we're trying to catch fish so um, you never know. What do you think are the chances of a sea trout today? Not too bad at all. It's, it's very overcast, um, which is good, and that little bit of wind helps. And even though the river is low, the sea trout still run up the river. They don't need the sort of spate that, that salmon need. Um, and there will be sea trout here already. Even though water levels are low, there are still some really decent holding pools here for salmon and sea trout, aren't there? Uh, and the one that we're going to go and, and have a go at uh, High Bank Pool is particularly good um, because it's very deep and the fish that have come up the river will hold there for weeks uh, until it's time to spawn. Gosh, it is low, isn't it? Yes, um, it, it doesn't come much lower than this. But one of the nice things about seeing the river this low is that it gives us a chance to see the pattern of the riverbed, where the fish might lie, where the deep holes are, where the channels are that the, the current runs through. And you reckon that sea trout would still run in these conditions? Absolutely, yeah. Well, let's, let's crack on then. So I suppose there's nothing for it but to uh, put up a fly and have a go. The choice of fly on a day like today now is, um, I suppose, you'd go for a small fly. You tend to go for bigger flies when the um, flood is running. But on a day like today, it's uh, a small fly you need. So anglers always have lots and lots of stuff in the box, usually much more than they need. Uh, so, okay, those are look a bit big now. Let's go for the other box. I have a little tin box here, which uh, I had as a lad. This was probably given to me as a gift when I was 14 or 15 years old. And I've had it ever since. And I keep my, mostly my sea trout flies in here. And I always think that, you know, we accumulate all this gear over the years and yet it's usually my ambition to go to the river with no more than that little fly box in my pocket. So what have we got? Presumably a small dark fly should do us. I have a little Zulu here and a little uh, teal and silver. And I think that's probably, that'll be plenty today. So this is a little two-piece rod that uh, my friend Chris Huxley gifted me uh, some years ago. And it's got a nice little bit of a handle extension, which I'll fit presently. It just gives me that extra bit of leverage if I need it. Yeah, so a little Zulu and a teal and silver, I think should be uh, plenty for, for today. It's funny, no matter how many times you've done this, if there's even a remote chance of a fish, you're gripped by some kind of excitement. You know there's plenty of time, you know you've done it lots of times before, but you still feel this sort of primal thrill. 
at the idea that you might do something with a fish today. Elements, a first robe of words, a shoal of flies above the fresh yellow of the furs, insistence of earth and air when Cromwell's God and his ladies never passed this way, just some dried orange peel to mark a hiker's déjeuner. This might not be enough, but it's all too much for a heron that lifts its shriek into the distance and deserts. Then only sky remains in a window hole, stone's absence at the edge of stone, as seen by labouring men before a frame was fitted to save a dream of stars. So we're in one of my favourite parts of the uh, Nathan Forest. It's a place called Srariva, and uh, it's a typical mixture of old growth, lodgepole pine, and newer plantings. And then, of course, you've the inevitably rhododendron scrub, and you've occasional birch and willow and rowan along the path. This particular path is just one of the old forestry tracks that hasn't been used very much and is now all grassy and overgrown but it's a fine point of access into this landscape. I'm something of a champion of the forestry legacy here. I believe that um, we've had forestry in this area for about 70 years now. So a lot of these trees are really quite a, impressive specimens. They're at different stages of uh, development. Some of them have prospered and they're fine old stately trees. Others haven't done so well on the wetter uh, ground. So they're rather stunted and they don't look very well but nonetheless they're part of the of the landscape. You've got some other clearings then where because of the forestry actually the heather has uh, been protected and you've got good heather growth inevitably there's some rhododendron and you've got other trees like willow and birch seeding naturally in these clearings. There's also the fact that the um, Bird populations here are quite special, quite distinctive. It's not all a case of sterile forestry plantation. There are openings in the forest, there are little glades and glens, there are areas of uh, wind blow where light has come into the forest and where new vegetation is growing through as well. We've got uh, some typical birds of the native forest around us this evening. I'm hearing a willow warbler there in the distance. There are blackcaps here. The wren is usually good for a burst of song from the undergrowth. And we have siskins in the air calling and they're almost ubiquitous in these, in these forests. The list goes on and on. Crossbill is a bird that has really found a home here because it specializes in extracting seeds from the cones of spruce and pine. And we are hoping that the woodpeckers will make their way in here one of these days. And now and again, you'll be surprised by 
the sudden dash of a sparrowhawk through, through the clearings. I've been drawn to this place uh, because of my interest in birds. I suppose it's one way in. There are many ways into an appreciation of the natural world. You could be a botanist, you could be interested in butterflies, beetles, moths, uh, or indeed you could just come in here for the peace and, and quiet of a June evening, uh, midges, midges permitting. I'm interested in the uh, bird communities here. I think there, there are distinctive bird species, birds that have found their niche here and are thriving. And uh, perhaps a moment for a, for a poem, uh, a tribute, among other things, to one of the very special birds of the North Mayo wilderness. Merlin at Tarsicon Moor. This is where the wizard lives, still being realised to cleave a range over the heatherings of a morning, a surprise out of the mist. This is where the horizon keeps an old nimble jack away from the chattering city, so no one can repute him to a bad end, and no industry can exile him any farther. He needs nothing more than the posts he nominates with his feet, this wire, this river bank, this facing of stones to accommodate his desert eye, and these two foxholes on the far side, the stops of a flute he plays when he lifts the glittering river. But could you find him if you looked? There has to be another god to upstage, a different day that starts with maps. And just as you stop for a Eucharist of sandwiches, suddenly Pippet, the Redeemer, is gone. And there he is with the mountain on his shoulders. He's carrying the valley's only song. I'm here with Michael Chambers overlooking Loch Fia. The birds are still uh, putting in quite a performance here. We've got meadow pipits in the sky around us and uh, this common sandpiper is still, still making noise along the, the edge of the lake. Michael Chambers is a, a man with many local connections to this area, a local historian and explorer, I think is uh, another term to describe you, Michael. You're now working for the uh, Parks and Wildlife Service in this area. So I started working with the National Parks about three years ago and uh, yeah we can trace our family roots back to this area to the late 1700s and uh, yeah it's a nice special spot to be living in. Yeah there's a, a northern connection I gather with your family. Yeah we can trace our family roots back to Tyrone and sometime in the late 1700s they seem to have settled down to this part of the world. I believe this place um, has quite a lot of stories connected to the War of Independence and the troubled times in Ireland as well. Yes, uh, as a family we grew up listening to stories of my grandfather, who was long passed on before I was born. We were told about how exactly about 100 years ago, after the Kilmina ambush, the West Mayo Flying Column were billeted here in the mountains in, uh, in the village of Skirder. And uh, the position was um, came upon by the, the British authorities and up to 500 uh, black and tan troops trying to try to surround the column to capture them 
but uh, my grandfather was sent for us a scout along with Thomas Green Chambers and they led the men into the mountains. He brought the column up to caves on Corrine Mountain and they spent the night there and the report from the British forces afterwards, we don't know where the column went, they just disappeared into the mountains. Literally disappeared into the mountains? Yeah, because as I went, was going to find out about these caves, they're not your stereotype cave that we see a, a tunnel into a side of a hill and you walk in. These are boulder chambers and these had tiny entrances underneath huge boulders. And even if you were outside the main entrance, you wouldn't know that there was a large chamber underneath these boulders where a column of men could hide out. You weren't told at the time where this chamber was? No, those guys from that period of our history kept their secrets very close to the chest and uh, my grandfather wouldn't give out the location to many of these caves that he came across throughout the mountains because in case they were needed again, in case there was another uprising or whatnot. Tell me then, how did you manage to find the caves uh, in the end? Well, I happened to be up there searching the cliff and I'd given up searching when um, I raised a kestrel and she hovered over my head, warning me off obviously because she had a little nest on the cliff. So I rose up on, on, over these huge boulders beneath the cliff just to see where our nest was so I could ID it and report it back to the National Park where there was a kestrel nesting. And while I was up there, I seen a passage beneath the large boulders. So I decided to walk up to the end of the passage and to my surprise when I got there, the passage continued on at exactly 90 degrees angle into a large tunnel that led into a large chamber beneath the, the boulders. You had found the source of one of your family's main stories about the troubled times. Definitely, Sean. Now, as I say, I think of you, Michael, as an explorer, and you're an explorer not going off to distant lands, but an explorer of your own patch. And I suppose there's a, there's a kind of a lesson for all of us in that, is that uh, we've got a lot to discover right under our very noses and right in our own areas. I know there's another story, a much earlier story that uh, we're about to explore shortly, and it has to do with the very first people into this area. There's still a lot more out there to be discovered because of the location of the mountains so close to the sea. It would have been an ideal area for early settlers to settle around these mountains and whatnot. We're on our way to uh, the cliffs under Ben Gurham. Uh, just above us, we have a moraine, which would have been the sort of rampart at the front of the ice. And behind that moraine, we can see clearly where um, the action of ice gouged out the side of the mountain and still to this day leaves signs. We can see the bare rock, which has been well worked and abraded by ice. And on our way up as well, we'll be crossing a kind of whaleback of bare rock where you can almost hear the squeaking and the creaking of the glacier as it, uh, as it moved across. I've got a massive capstone above me and I need to sort of straddle this big boulder to get in. So I'm trusting that Michael Chambers is in there somewhere holding the fort. Yes, there's a light. There's Michael. And uh, I think I can say that I'm in, which is the second time I've managed it. Uh, so 
Right, the, the bottom here is quite uneven, and it really is remarkable how the um, the quartz seems to glow in this environment. Um, and we have Michael Chambers as well, just helping things with a light. So, Michael, what was it like when you first got in here? I noticed there seemed to be isoms on the floor of the cave here around us. Curve-shaped isoms, like some kind of chalk-type bowl and um, human remains. So, Michael, if you found human remains here, um, is that something that you had to tell the authorities about? Yeah, we reported to the Gardaí and we, we pointed out um, the bits of bones that we'd found on the floor, which were parts of human skulls. The word got through to the archaeologist Marion Dowd. She came here and um, did the full recovery with her team on the site here. So it's been, it has been excavated? It has been excavated and there's been a remarkable find and a remarkable discovery. So can you tell us a little bit about the, uh, you know, the time frame we're talking about? This was a unique site in Ireland, according to the archaeologist. That, um, there seemed to be an, a purpose-based hit here in the middle of the chamber in the rocks here and it was made up of soil and fragments of quartz rocks and also fragments of bone and on top of this little bed it seems to be uh, a body was left on top of this to decompose and when this process had completed it looked as if the people went back into the cave and cracked the skulls open because the skulls were all in fragments remember when we found them to free the soul they believe the souls were in the in the head of the people at the time and the spirit went off into the afterworld it looks as if um this chamber had been used for over 1200 years as this ritual size to get ready these bodies for the afterworld archaeologists were actually able to uh age the remains yeah so the oldest bones dated back to 5600 years ago and the youngest dated to 4,400 years ago. So that shows that this cave had been used in this ritual for over 1,200 years. So I'm imagining that uh, in the days when there was a lot of forest lower down, that perhaps people moved more freely along the higher ridges. An interesting thing there also that the archaeologists discovered was a lot of charcoal. They also radiocarbon dated the charcoal, and that dated back to over 8,000 years ago. So. We think now this would have been used by some of the earliest people that settled in this area as a stop-off point as they were hunting gathering. 8,000 years ago? 8,000 years ago. So that's even before Be the Neolithic? Before that's right the back with the Mesolithic hunter-gatherers? Yeah, yeah. I get the feeling that there are more things to discover in this area and no better man than yourself uh, to keep exploring and uh, who knows what else we might discover about this site. Definitely. to go up, up across here. So now that we're out of the cave and uh, I've just been told that we've got the entire spread of Irish prehistory in this area, going right back to the Mesolithic 8,000 years ago, it seems like the right moment for uh, this poem before anthropology. Before the first words in Ireland, there were sparse post-glacial trees and northern birds. 
before the hunched primates of the Ban and their caravan of history, there were subarctic vistas, herring grounds and tundra hills unnamed. I take paleopaths after Prager and de Butler into rugged interiors, or down to the rim of the sea, to the lost boreal continents before me and my story, where there's no freezing bivouac, no manned anorak between me and the loon. Our archaeology begins in the first settlings of birch pollen. The bone we know is a bear dying in a cave long ago. Before I get to the museum, new broadleaves come hither in milder weather. Coracles reach a northern shore, loaded with term and totem, and hatch my kind. Much blood has dried in the long chronicle of passion, hate, and vanity. It's all there in the archives I have served, and will serve again, because there's more to do and more to say, says a friend who's great of heart. And in all I do and say, there's the scene the heart prefers, of that forced loneliness of trees and northern birds. At the end of this long day, uh, our thoughts turn, I suppose, to the night and the, the night sky. And I'm reminded of uh, those occasions as a youngster when we would come back to the cottage in Kerry where we were staying on our holidays. Sometimes we were absolutely startled by the stars overhead and by the, the Milky Way. And uh, I'm talking now to someone who's... Uh, has a very particular interest in the night sky and who has been instrumental in the creation of the Mayo Dark Skies Park here within the Wild Nathan National Park, Georgia Macmillan. Georgia, will you tell us something about what brought you to uh, becoming such a great enthusiast and advocate of the, the night sky? Well, unlike yourself, um, I didn't have the privilege of visiting uh, Kerry for the stars when I was younger, but I, I grew up in or near, near to London. Um, but my mother's from Mayo, so when we would come over here, that's one memory I'd have is that the, the, the night sky was just so stunning and the contrast that we had uh, with the streetlights in London. Now, when um, I was studying outdoor education in GMIT in, in Castlebar not too long ago, I... I had to do a, a project on wilderness and outdoor education and I came across Galloway Forest Park, which is the UK's first dark sky park, and started to research the impact of maybe having something similar here. On our doorstep, we obviously I was conscious that we had um, the Wild Nathan Park, the wilderness area, and just thought there might be potential to do the same here in Mayo. And uh, we hear, of course, nowadays that... Uh because of light pollution and so on, people, particularly in cities, perhaps don't have the relationship that people once had with the night sky. Are there particular things that you'd like people to appreciate about the night sky? I think the sense of openness that you have um, when you're in an urban environment, you don't really see that skyscape that we have. So one of the things we say about the, the dark sky park here is half the park is after dark. So in the day you have that we have the big skies in Mayo, we have the mountainous region, but at night time we still have the open skyscape to admire, to enjoy, 
and to inspire us. And when you look back through, I mean, literature, how the night sky has inspired that, art, things like Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night would never have been so colourful if he had been encroached by light pollution in the way that urban environments are now. Well, I guess it's something that I haven't appreciated enough. Um, I talk about the space that we have here in North Mayo, but for me, that's the space by day looking at these vast horizons. But I'm sure there's another scale, another aspect entirely when you're talking about the great distances of the night sky. Astronomical. Astronomical <laughs> distances, indeed. It's another version of the romantic sublime, but on a much bigger scale altogether. So the uh, Mayo Dark Skies project isn't just about you and your interests. I gather it's something that you want to communicate to a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us something about the work around that project? The Dark Sky Park here is a gold tier international Dark Sky Park, so it's recognised the world over. So when we have groups um, that have made the journey up here, we like to, to orientate them first of all, just to to show them some simple things that some people may already know, so how to find the North Star, Polaris, for instance, and then from there, if you can find North, you can find South, so you have a little bit of orientation with the night, um, and our ancestors would have done that. They would have used the night sky to navigate, so there's a, a few little techniques we can teach people. And then just looking above to see, you know, what's out there. One of our favourite constellations in wintertime is, is Orion, so... Um, again, a lot of people would be familiar with the, the three stars on his belt, but when you're in a really dark area, you can see so much more. You can really start to pick out the colour of the different stars. You can also then see the, the shapes and re recognise where the names came from. So Orion being a, a giant and a hunter, you can make out shape much more in, in a darker area. And one thing we like to do here in Mayo is because we have legends and stories we like to try and transpose those into the night sky so that maybe young people children can remember the local legends so with Orion we have um, the legend of Dohiborn from Ballycroy so we like to picture Dohiborn in the night sky um, over Korshleve maybe with the Dawaku chasing him the water hound so in the sky you have the star of Sirius the dog star chasing Orion and we like to transpose that into um, the Dawaku chasing Dohiborn. So you're putting a Mayo imprint exactly. onto the constellations. Exactly, That's very we're good. claiming a few constellations. And uh, what kind of equipment do you need to actually appreciate and view the uh, night sky? Most of our night sky viewing is with the naked eye, but binoculars, um, you know, if you have a good pair of binoculars, you can, you can really, you know, can pick out um, like Jupiter, for instance, looks fabulous through binoculars. You don't need very high-tech equipment. And a basic telescope you could start with and you can get a really good a view of the moon and you know you feel you know how much how close it is when man you know walked on the moon you can see that through the telescope you really get that connection with the celestial sky plans for the future thoughts of the future as well there are there are big plans for this region uh, for the future with uh, an observatory and a planetarium in the pipeline i can't say exactly when at the moment because we as i say we're looking at plans but um it will it will happen. So, um, yeah, the future is, I don't want to say bright, let's say the future is dark, dark. for Mayo. Wild Nathan is a landscape within time, within the time of the glaciers and their retreat, the time of the Scots pine forest and the time of the first peoples who came in here from the Mesolithic period onwards. 
And there has been a succession of arrivals, people bringing their culture, their language, their words, their stories to this place and taking from the place as well. And now as the forestry industry begins to withdraw, leaving a wilderness, it's something that will develop into the future. And that's a time frame that won't include me for much of it. So here's a poem about that, about that long process called a wilding. One willow is a breezy post, two are a shadowed light, three are a blackbird's roost, four are a copse at night, five are a moon's prison, six are a snipe flying over, seven are a field's division into shelter and exposure, eight was where he said a black cap would nest, nine a deserted shade during his final illness. Ten were never his, but they are wilding now with bracken and brambles under running clouds.